Father, we thank you for your amazing grace upon our sinful souls. We thank you, Father, for so great a salvation and so great a Savior, a Savior worthy of every breath in our lungs, worthy of every drop of blood in our veins, worthy, Father, of our life's energy, worthy, Lord, of our lives in totality and our deaths. We thank you for so great a Savior, such a loving God and King, who would come in the likeness of men to be scorned, to be hated, to be rejected, to be spit upon, to be beaten, to be crucified and cursed. He who is holy, holy, holy. He who is omnipotent. He who is eternal came into space, time, and matter to suffer at the hands of sinners, to redeem them, to save them from the curse of sin and death. O Lord, so great a Savior and so great a gospel is worth all that we are and ever will be. Convince us of this reality, Lord. Convict us. Strengthen us. Set us free, Lord, from self-love. Set us free from fear. Set us free, Lord, from faithlessness and replace all of that with faith, with hope, with love, and with courage, Lord. May we not be found cowards in the day of battle, but courageous warriors for Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that we do not have to live and die as cowards, but can live and die as followers of Christ, valiant in battle, for your glory, for your honor, and for the redemption of precious souls. We pray it in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Amen. The title of this morning's message, Evangelistic Cowardice and Courage. The New King James Version of the Bible contains 51 verses that say, Do not fear. 50 verses that say, do not be afraid. 11 that say, fear not. And an estimated total of over 300 verses that contain the same meaning said in various ways. God commands us to fear Him and nothing else. In Isaiah chapter 41 verse 10, we have one of those examples, one of those precious fear not texts. Isaiah 41 verse 10. We don't have the time to look at all 300 plus. And it says there, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And all of God's saints said, amen. Amen. Fear not. Why must God tell us again and again and again throughout his word to fear not? Because we are a fearful people. We are a fearful people. We tend to cower in fear in various aspects, in various places of our lives. The culture around us has never more been more given under the direction of Satan, our enemy, the great deceiver, has never been more given to attempting to make us fearful, to make us cowards 
to make us afraid, to silence our voices, to cause us to sit down and shut up, or run, run away from the day of battle. And the Lord says into this culture, into this world, fear not. But remember the world he's speaking to originally, the world that Isaiah was given to, the world that the New Testament was given to, a violent world, a dangerous world, a world where your own king may take your life at a whim of his heart, a world where competing kings may take your life if your king and his army is not able to protect you, a world where there were no kings, every man doing what is right in his own eyes. There were families, and every family was an army, and you hoped your family was stronger and or wiser than the neighboring family. You recall how Abraham and his servants rose up as an army and went to defend their family. And so into that world, historic Old Testament, historic New Testament, and present day, the Lord says, fear not. He doesn't say fear not because there's nothing to fear. Fear not because there are no dangers. Fear not because there, there is nothing that you might suffer because God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Health and wealth for all. No, he says fear not to a people surrounded by fearful things, people surrounded by dangerous things, people surrounded by dangerous animals and dangerous disease and dangerous armies and dangerous tyrants. He says fear not. Fear not for I am with you. I am with you. The Lord was with Isaiah. The Lord was with Jeremiah at the bottom of that well where he was thrown for proclaiming the word of God. The Lord was with Israel throughout all its history. The Lord was with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Lord was with Joseph in Potiphar's house and in Pharaoh's prison. The Lord is with David. The Lord is with Samson. The Lord is with Jephthah. The Lord is with his people. I am with you. He is with us and he has ordained this day for us. This day is the day that God has ordained that we would live valiantly for his glory and fight a good fight for the honor of his name, to the redemption of sinners' souls. In the Old Testament, we fought with a steel sword to advance the kingdom of God. And there was beneath that yet the spiritual kingdom advancing as well. In the New Testament, we advance with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And yet the world still wants to take up arms and make it a real hot war, a bloody war against Christ's church. And it has been doing so for 2,000 years. It's still doing so around the world today. And we are more and more threatened with the reality of a bloody war as we war spiritually with the Word of God. We're threatened with a bloody war from Satan's army. The God-hating, atheistic, Marxist, leftist army Oh yes, it has always been a threat. It's always been a danger. It's always been a persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ. And it is today. And it's ruining its ugly head in the United States of America. And the Antifa army is part of it. The BLM army is part of it. The LGBT army is part of it. And they are coming for us. They are marching to war. And it's real. They mean to win. And they mean to take our children and our grandchildren and make them their own. 
They mean to bring them captive to the devil's lies and to subjugate them and drag them down to hell. The war is on. It's just a matter of whether we'll show up believing God and obeying God, fearing not, knowing this is the day He has ordained for us to live in and knowing He is with us in it. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, dismayed. We're just befuddled. We're dismayed. Oh, it's just so fearful. It's so dangerous. It's, it's, it's never been like this before. No, it's always been like this. We, we've just lived in the Disneyland of the earth. We've lived in the safest, most prosperous, easygoing place there's ever been in the history of the world. But that's changing because the church of Jesus Christ has not been going to war. The church of Jesus Christ got comfortable. It got static. It got oh so safe. And we have made an idol of the, the God of safety, the God of security, the God of living long and prospering. We seem to have become Vulcans and not be Christians at all. Find me on the pages, the safe followers of God, the safe Israel, the safe church. Be safe. Find me that command. Be careful. Find me that command. You cannot find it. It's not in the book. Fear not. That's what's in the book. For I am with you. Be not dismayed. Don't don't think this is original to us. Be not dismayed. Stand and fight. When the Lord Jesus gave His original Great Commission, right, the Great Commission, He gave it to His people, assuring them that they would suffer and die as they obeyed it. Because there was no separation of church and state in the earth. Every state was connected to some form of church, if you will, some form of religion. And if you opposed their religion, you were opposing the state, and so you die. But into that world, Jesus said, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Preach repentance to all nations. And lo, I will be with you. I will be with you. Even to the end of the age. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Do we believe God? Do we believe God in our actions? Do we believe God in our emotions? You see, we don't have the right to fear. We don't have the right to feel whatever we want to feel. We don't have the right, like our culture is saying, love is love. Therefore, whatever you think love is, you, you can feel it and you can express it and that's all good and fine. No, God defines love. And thus, we must curtail what we call love within that. God defines good and right thinking. And living in fear is not good and right thinking. We need to live in contrast to fear, faith. Faith. And fear is counter faith. Fear is the opposite of faith. We're not believing God. How can you practically replace the fear of man, the fear of disease, the fear of death, the fear of suffering, the fear of loss of life and liberty and pursuit of happiness? How can you replace all these fears? Fear God. That's how. Fear God alone. Place your faith in God. Fear Him alone. And you need fear nothing else. Believe God. He will strengthen you. Believe God. He will help you. Believe God. He will uphold you with His righteous right hand. Believe God that your life 
is more valuable than that of a sparrow. And that he holds it in his hand. And that you cannot stub your toe, much less lose your life, except that the Lord allow it. Believe God that your prosperity, your relative safety, your retirement plan, your career, your scholastic endeavors, all that you do is in His hands. And don't covet those things. Covet this. Well done, good and faithful servant. Covet that. And let the Lord be concerned about the secret things of how prosperous you will be, how long your retirement will be, um, how successful you'll be in a school system or a career or in this world, or whether your neighbor will like you or talk to you for the next decade after you speak to him about Christ and his or her need to repent and be saved. Matthew 10, 24 in the New Testament, again, just picking a few of these glorious verses out of the Hundreds that speak of not fearing, fear not, do not be afraid. Matthew 10, verses 24 through 39, is a pivotal text to that end. The Lord Jesus speaking, he says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. That's really bad news for those who bought into the God as a wonderful plan for your life, health and wealth. It's going to be great. <laughs> A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. What did they do to Jesus? He was fully God and fully man. He was perfect love. He was perfect wisdom. He was perfect power. He was perfect kindness. He had perfect speech. He who was the perfect preacher. What did they do to him? They united against him, Jew and Gentile alike, and they said, crucify him, crucify him. We have no Lord but Caesar. So what will they do to you? A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, Satan, how much more would they call those of his household? I lost track these last two days of how many things I was accused of, how many vile, disgusting things were thrown at me. For daring to stand and publicly proclaim the word of God in the name of Jesus Christ and his precious gospel. Verse 26, therefore, do not fear them. The Lord Jesus doesn't say, look, it's going to be really bad. They're going to call you terrible things. They're going to accuse you of terrible things. They're going to try to destroy you. Run, hide. I love you. I don't want you to get hurt. (laughs) Instead, he says, therefore, do not fear. Fear, therefore, because of that, in in light of that, in light of this warning of the opposition you're going to face, the persecution you're going to face, the tribulation you're going to face, therefore, do not fear them. Remember, he commands us to go, therefore, to go to war, to go fight a fight in his name, for his glory. Fear is the exact opposite. It's going to lead to hiding and running and silence. No, go, fight. You've got one chance, saints. You've got one chance. A few laps around the sun, that's all you've got, and then eternity comes. You've got one chance to glorify your King. One chance to be in the fight for His glory and the redemption of sinners. One chance. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? I love hobbies. I love sports. I love guns and shooting. 
I love having a nice time. I love good food. I love being alive and uninjured. I love it when people think I'm a nice guy and they're happy to wave and say, hi, neighbor. That's all good. And yet I love Jesus more. I love eternal souls more. I love the glory of God more. I love God more than all of that put together because he first loved me and he saved me from eternity's wrath, which I deserve by taking eternity's wrath in my place. Therefore, I'll give up all of that if need be, all of that to love God and love my neighbor as myself, at least when I'm in my right mind, by the power of the Spirit of God. When the fruit of the Spirit, love, is being manifest and compelling my synapses, when I'm in my right mind, when I see eternity rightly, when I see this, this little bit of time I've got here on this planet, when I look in the mirror and I see, wow, I'm a lot older than I thought I was. That really went fast. I think, what am I doing here? It's not to perfect my hobbies. It's not to you know, get a faster and faster run time, which you're going to find you get slower and slower. It's not to make as much money as I can, to have as much stuff as I can. He who dies the most toys wins. No, you're a loser. He who dies with the most souls wins. How many people will be in heaven because of your testimony? How many people will stop blaspheming God and start praising and worshiping God because of the gospel you proclaimed? Because of the gospel tract you gave them? How many eternal souls? There's one thing you can take with you to heaven. One thing, people, souls. And that will be forever and ever and ever and ever. Those are the treasures. People, souls. Therefore, do not fear them. For there's nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. All the filth they throw at you, all the accusations they throw at you, all the hate they throw at you, it's all going to be shown for what it is. Either now in space, time, and matter, as often happens given time, all the lies, it's shown for what it is. But most certainly in eternity. So they call you Beelzebub. Oh well, they call Jesus that too. But no, he's... He's actually God. (laughs) The lies will fall away. The hate will fall away. The filth they throw upon you will fall away physically or verbally. There's nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Verse 27, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. In, in contrast to fearing and running, in contrast to fearing and falling silent, in contrast to fearing and staying home, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. Whatever I tell you in your personal study of the Word of God, doing your little home Bible study, your Bible time, Whatever I tell you in the gathering of the local church and the safety of those four walls, preach in the light. Preach in the light. The world needs it. You're not just studying the Bible at home so you can feel good about yourself. I'm a good Christian. I read my Bible today. 
You're not just coming to church to hear the Word of God so you can feel like a good Christian. I said under the preaching of the Word of God today. You're getting equipped for the work of the ministry. And while there are many ministries, being a husband, a wife, a father, a mother, a son, a daughter, a worker, a co-worker, uh, an employer, all these things are ministries in one way or another. But the chief ministry, the chief ministry is that of the gospel, always, in all those venues. Therefore, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. Whatever you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. Preach on the housetops. Find a high place where everyone can hear you. Preach from the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Don't fear them, says Jesus. They can kill your body. They can't kill your soul. They can kill your career. They can't kill your soul. I preached this standing in front of Mason Goodnight, who just had his career killed by God-haters. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Do not fear those who can kill your reputation but cannot kill the soul. Do not fear those who can kill the bright, shiny future you have planned for yourself but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear God, who is actually the one who is sovereign over your life, sovereign over your life and death, sovereign over whatever relative level of prosperity and health and happiness you enjoy in this world. Fear Him, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Isn't this a precious text about the sparrows and the hairs on your head? So precious. And it's given as a comfort to saints. And I've heard it preached many, 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 many times out of context completely. Completely divorced from the context of whatever I tell you in the dark, Speak in the light. Whatever I tell you in the dark, yell from the housetops. It's, it's spoken to people who are doing nothing with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's ripped out of the context, telling them, you know, don't fear death. Don't, don't fear hard times. Don't, don't fear trials and difficulties. No, Jesus is saying, look, as you fight a good fight, as you go therefore to make disciples, as you're turning the world upside down, as you're filling your Jerusalem, your city with the doctrine of Christ, do not fear. Your life is far more precious than that of a sparrow. Not even a sparrow falls to the ground except that God allows it. Your life is far more important than the hairs on your head. And God knows and has numbered all the hairs on your head. He knows all the details of your life. And as children of God, he, he loves us immeasurably. And He's proven that at the cross. He's not trying to prove it to you by giving you a wonderful life of prosperity and ease. The proof of God's love is the cross for us. And the proof of our love for Him is to die to self and take up the cross. So God gives us a precious promise that we're of far more value than sparrows in the context of us dying to self and taking up the cross cross and suffering for it. Knowing that you can't die a moment before He is allowed 
and you'll not suffer. You'll not lose one hair from your head that he's not ordained that you're going to lose. Just yesterday, you know, I I knew the entire time, I'm not going to get hit unless the Lord's ordained it. If he has, so be it. I'm going to keep preaching Christ despite the threats. Despite the man an inch from my face losing his mind. And, And that's not, you know, look at me, I'm courageous. No, that's, look at the Word of God. Look at what the power of the Spirit of God will do in us to make us believe the Word of God and thus fear not and have faith and thus to free us to be courageous in the power of the Spirit of God. Believe in God instead of your emotions. Oh no, man angry, run. Oh no, man angry, shut up. Oh no, man might hit me. Stop doing whatever you're doing to compel him to hit you. No, preach Christ crucified. Preach the law of God as a tutor to bring men to Christ be justified by faith. Don't stop preaching. And praise the Lord, every preacher yesterday faced extreme opposition and not one preacher stopped preaching. Verse 32, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. That should either be an extreme comfort or an extreme terror. The Lord Jesus will readily confess those who confess Him. But He warns He will deny those who deny Him. We want to have a powerful confession of Jesus Christ. We want the angels of heaven to be rejoicing that a champion has come home. We we want the Lord Jesus to be able to say, this one is mine. Decidedly mine. Clearly mine. Undeniably mine. He or she bears the marks of being my follower. He or she was hated and despised and rejected and called Beelzebub and worse as one of my followers. They bear the marks. Whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. Why don't we confess Jesus before men? Because we love self. When do we confess Jesus before men? When we love Jesus and we love others more than self. Which is why Jesus says we must die to self, take up the cross. Die to self. Take up the cross and follow him. Verse 34, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. Most Christians have a Christianity that Jesus did not give foundation to. He, he, this is not his Christianity. That he came to give you a, a peaceful, happy, go lucky life. He came to give you peace for the holy God that you have offended in your sin first and foremost. In addition to that, he'll give you a peace that surpasses understanding, meaning there will be hardships, and yet you will have a peace that overrides those hardships, praise God. But he did not come to give the peace that is so often offered and promised 
by those giving a non-Christian message. For the Lord Jesus says, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. It's the church thinking that and the church acting like that, the church not at war, the church not going there for, the church not preaching repentance to all nations, started with our own, that has led to this antichrist nation that we now live in. And that's where we now live, in an antichrist nation. How, how are you enjoying that? Everyone enjoying the new antichrist nation? I'm not enjoying it. And I've been warning that it's coming for decades. It's coming. If the church doesn't march to war, those who are marching to war will prevail. And they've been marching to war with ideas, satanic ideas, satanic messages, and getting bolder and louder in them. And you can't believe, you cannot imagine the satanic things said these last few days to us. It is open Satanism in all sorts of vile ways. The good news of Satan, the love of Satan being preached back at us by name. Not just figuratively, by name. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. A sword, saints. That's what this is. It's a sword. And we are to wield it. We are to unsheathe it and wield it for the glory of God, the redemption of sinners. But there's a secondary thing. Also the preservation of peace in this earth. And to hold evil at bay. Well, the first and foremost goal is always to see God glorified in the redemption of sinners. To love God and love neighbor. But the secondary goal and the secondary result is that evil will be held in check. Gross, disgusting, vile, dangerous, criminal, evil held in check. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Why does the Lord Jesus speak to that? Because so often what keeps us from being the soldiers of Christ, the soldiers of the cross that God has called us to be, what keeps us from being fearless and makes us fearful, is we're not even willing to offend those closest to us. You all that have been here for some time, you've all seen whole families go apostate when the children went apostate. The children leave Christ, mom and dad do too. Some of you have been in Bible studies where women say, well, wait, my my husband's not saved. And so, you know, if following Jesus means... You know, he's going to be offended. You know, I, I, I'm not going to follow Jesus. I'm going to choose love of husband over Jesus. Sorry, I'm out. And, and many, many have left our church as they're leaving Wellspring Bible Church as well. Praise God, some also come for the same reason others leave. But they've left because, wait, wait, we just want to be, you know, we just want to, be consoled and encouraged. We just want some tips for life. We just want to be told God loves us week by week and it's all going to be fine and then go about our hobbies and our careers and our 
gathering of goods and enjoying of services. We, we don't want to be the church at war with the devil who's laboring daily with his armies to drag multitudes to hell. To destroy them in life and damn them in eternity. We don't want to stand in the devil's way. So we're going to let him destroy our neighbors, destroy our culture, destroy our nation, and damn millions and billions of souls to hell because we don't want to put a bullseye on our chest. And if you as a pastor, you as a church can have a bullseye on your chest by standing in the way of the devil's army, destroying lives, destroying families, destroying states and cities and nations, and damning souls. If you're going to get in the way of that and make a ruckus, then I'm out. I'm out. I'm going to find a place where I can go and feel like I'm a Christian following Jesus, where it's nice and safe. What does Jesus say to that? He rebukes it. Look, I do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Verse 38, he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. In Mark's gospel, he says, my sake and my gospel. Oh, what a powerful teaching on not being afraid. It's from Jesus, our Lord. In Revelation 2.10, the Lord says to His church, the church of Smyrna, the cross church, a church that He loves, He says, Do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer because I'm not going to let you suffer. No, no. He says, Do not fear any of the things you're about to suffer. He's allowing the suffering. He's ordained the suffering. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. How does God loves you as a wonderful plan for your life fit for the church of Smyrna? Well, if the, if the wonderful plan for their life is you know, ten days of life, suffering the devil's assaults personally, not just the abstract assault of the, the devil's system, world system and those that serve him, but the personal assault of the devil. If you consider that a wonderful life, as we biblically should, then yeah, I guess you can preach that. God loves you as a wonderful plan for your life. Here it is, Smyrna. Here's the wonderful plan for eternity, Smyrna. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. God does have a wonderful plan for your life. Eternal life. Eternal peace. Eternal love. Eternal forgiveness. Eternal childhood as a child of God. He has a wonderful plan for your eternal life. But this present life is our one chance to fight a good fight. For His glory and the redemption of sinners. Revelation 21, verse 7, of course, this beautiful promise. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. What a precious promise. He who overcomes. He who overcomes sin and Satan and death. He who overcomes through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. He who overcomes 
She'll inherit all things. That is a wonderful promise. It's a wonderful plan. That's a wonderful life in eternity. You're going to inherit all things. It's nice to inherit some things in this world, but everything you inherit and everything you earn, it's all going to be lost. And half of what you inherit, the state's going to take. (laughs) And half of what you leave for your inheritance, the state's going to take. And try not to get too wrapped around the axle, although I would vote that out in a minute. Your true inheritance is from God. And no thief, Democrat or otherwise, can take it. No moth will eat it up in the closet. No rust will destroy it in your driveway. Should have parked that in the garage. This is inheritance, an inheritance that is eternal, that will not pass away. And our chief inheritance is God himself. The chief glory of heaven, the chief wonder of heaven, the chief benefit of heaven is God is there. And we will actually cherish him and love him and know his love more fully than we ever have when we get there, having put off this body of death. Verse 8, in contrast, says, but the cowardly. So verse 7, he who overcomes shall inherit all things. I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Let me just say this briefly. There are a great many Christians looking at the latter portion of that list and saying, yuck and yuck. Look at those murderers out there, those abominable sinners out there, those sexually immoral out there, those liars and idolaters out there. They're going to hell. But they have no compelling interest in going out to call them to repentance and faith. They they have no blip on their heart, on their EKG. There's nothing (laughs) beating to drive them to go rescue the sinners. But just to kind of note it and complain about it. And they skip right on by generally that first sinner that's going to be in hell, the cowardly which is fairly terrifying, especially in light of what Jesus said. If you confess me, I'll confess you. If you deny me, I'll deny you before my Father who is in heaven. I want to be decidedly on the side of non-cowardly. Over here in the clearly confessing. And not just once or twice. But Jesus said to die and take up the cross daily. I'm not talking about work salvation. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. I am warning that some think they're saved who are not. They've checked the box. Yeah, I believe that technical gospel stuff. And yep, I like to worship Jesus and do stuff. But I have no interest in His gospel being proclaimed. I have no interest in seeing lost sinners rescued from hell and going to heaven washed with the blood of the Lamb. I have no interest in seeing blasphemers who hate my God, who, who despise Him, and who hate God's servants and try to destroy them. I have no interest in seeing those who use my God's name, the God I profess to love, as a filth word in their mouths. I have no interest in seeing them repent and become worshipers of God. That's not a position of faith. That's not a position of love. That's not a position of courageous warrior 
behavior or passion or interest. My counsel to you is to hate cowardice in yourself. To hate it. Cowardice is not Christian. Don't allow it. Don't allow it. Kill it. Put it to death. Repent of it. Call God. Ask Him to put it to death in you, to replace it with faith, to kill that fear, to make you courageous for the glory of your King, the captain of your salvation. True cowards aren't born again. But make no mistake, we're all capable of being cowardly. Fear makes men cowardly. Faith makes men courageous. Fear makes men hide from danger. Faith makes men rise to do dangerous deeds that must be done and to say dangerous things that must be said. The historic accounts of courageous, bloodied warriors like Joshua, Caleb, David, Jonathan, Paul, and Peter taking up the sword of steel and the sword of Scripture to advance the kingdom of God fill the pages of Scripture. Courageous men say, let's take the land for the glory of God. Cowards and the cowardly hate them for it and call them foolhardy, reckless, and even wicked. Let's consider... David and Goliath. And now the introduction of the sermon is over and we get to the meat. Which is why I said this is a partial preaching of this sermon. Well, let's quickly consider David, Goliath, and Goliath as an example. First Samuel chapter 17, David and Goliath. We find the grand story of the army of cowards and one courageous young man. We've got the entire army of Israel. We've got King Saul all quaking in their boots, standing as cowards as this uncircumcised Philistine Goliath comes out daily, 40 days straight, and blasphemes the one true God. 40 days straight. David shows up on the scene. He comes from his father and his father's sheep. He comes with food for his brothers out there, helping to supply some food to Saul's great army. And he finds Saul's great army arrayed in their great soldierly costumes. Costumes. We don't want to be costumed soldiers. We don't want to be costumed Christians. We want to be the real deal. But if you won't go to the fight, it's a costume. It's cosplay. They're not real soldiers. David comes on the scene, and behold, there's Goliath, the champion of the Philistines, with his great staff, like a weaver's beam, standing, verse 8, crying out to the armies of Israel and saying to them, Why have you come up out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. 
Hear me, there are a multitude of Goliaths out there blaspheming our God, boasting their satanic lies, their antichrist passions, begging for a fight. And there are very few Christians who will stand up and give them the fight they're begging for. And they're winning the culture with all their bold sin, with all their proud sin, boasting their abortions, boasting their perversions, boasting their hatred of God, boasting their worship of Satan openly. And where are the Christians? Where's God's army? Verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. What did Isaiah say? Do not be dismayed. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. What did Matthew say? What did Jesus say? Do not fear. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. That is your nature and mine left to ourselves. That's the nature of men who trained, men who had the armament for war, men who had the armor upon themselves, men who traveled out to go to war, but they can't quite get themselves to actually fight. And so much of even what is called evangelism and evangelism training is just that. We're polishing up some armor. We're putting it on and trying it on in front of each other. In case one day we're forced into a corner and we have to fight, and we sure hope that day never comes. So David comes. But before he gets there, verse 16, the Philistine drew near and presented himself 40 days, morning and evening. And what is that? That's 40 days of fear and cowardice. David comes on the scene. He heard the account of Goliath and the soldiers of Israel. Verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. Fear begets fear. Faith begets faith. Courage begets courage. Fear begets fear. Cowardice begets cowardice. Those who love God do not respond with fear and cowardice, but faith and courage. Verse 26, we see the love of God manifest. David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the Living God. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? He doesn't say, wow, he sure is big. You're right. Wow, that weaver's beam spear, that's terrifying. And he's got that javelin between his shoulders. And he's got that armor bearer and that armor that's ridiculously outsizes, you know, all of us. It'd be madness to go out there. No, he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? In other words, he's nothing. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that defies the armies of the living God? 
They're defying our God. They're hating our God. Do we love God or not? They're hating our king. They're warring with our king. Do we love our king? Do we have any allegiance for our king? When we let them take our king's name and use it as a disgusting filth word in their perverted mouths and do nothing? Where's our love? David couldn't abide it. David couldn't go with the flow of the rest of the cowardly army. David said, what's wrong with you guys? He's defying the living God, our God. What's going on here? Cowards hate courageous men. Verse 28. Now, Eliab, his oldest brother, when he heard him, when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David, and he said, why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, but you have come down to see the battle. Oh, you're just down here as a battle tourist. You're just down here to to judge us in your pride and your insolence. You're you're just down here and you've, you've neglected your real responsibility, those sheep. Who's watching the sheep? You'd better get home, boy. Why did you come down here? Cowards are angry at courageous men. But hear me, they're not angry at the blasphemer. They're not angry at Goliath. David's incensed with Goliath. They're incensed with David. How dare you? How dare you? Cowards won't go to battle against Goliath. But they will go to battle against David. It's not that they're unwilling to fight. They're just unwilling to fight God's enemies. And they're more than willing to fight God's courageous man. Oh, how I have learned that lesson in 20-some years of gospel ministry. Cowards question the motives of the courageous Cowards find fault with the courageous warriors and suggest they should be busy doing something else. You're doing it wrong. Cowards unjustly impugn the character and motives of courageous men. You're full of pride and insolence. And hear me, I know, I know, without a shadow of a doubt, there'd be a great many pastors who would hear this message, and I pray they do, and they repent. But unfortunately, many will hear this message and say, oh, that's just pride, that's just pride. No, it's me pleading, pleading that we would believe Jesus, obey Jesus, believe God, obey God, that we would slay the coward in self and say, look, I'm a coward too, left to myself, but by the grace of God, we can be made courageous. And we can fight a good fight to the glory of God. We don't have to let Goliath and his uncircumcised Philistine army prevail in our land. We can stand up and fight like men. And if need be, die like men. Don't value peace and safety and long life so much that you die a coward. Safe and serene until Goliath and his army come to get you. Or just old age. Old age. It's nice to live a long life and die an old man. 
But if you lived a long life and died an old man because you played the coward, it's to your shame eternally. May that not be any of us. Verse 29, David said, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And the people answered him as the first ones did. They're all accusing him. Verse 31, now when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no, man, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. So David said, look, let, let, let no man's heart fail. Don't be dismayed. Don't be fearful. Don't be greatly fearful. Let no man's heart fail. I may be a boy, but I'll go fight him. He can't just sit there. He can't go along with this. Your servant will go fight with this Philistine. Who will go? Who will stand? Who will preach? And this day, when we're surrounded by uncircumcised Philistines, Goliaths of all sort and kind. Saul said to David, you're not able to go up against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. Saul had no faith. Faith begets faith. Courage begets courage. Verse 34, David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it rose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. How do you get mighty for battle? By fighting the battles that are in front of you. You start with the smaller battles and you get stronger and more courageous and your faith increases. When you step out in faith here, then you're able to step out in faith here and here. Verse 36, your servant has killed both lion and bear, and thus this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, the Lord, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. You see, David wasn't boasting. David wasn't saying, look at me, be like me, I'm awesome. And I'm not saying, look at me, be like me, I'm awesome. No, I'm not awesome. But my God is. And the God who has strengthened me for battle will strengthen you for battle. The God that strengthened David for battle with a lion and a bear strengthened him for battle with the Philistine giant that no sane man would face. But we're not called to be sane men. We're called to be faith-filled men. Courageous men. We're not called to do all the facts and figures. There's no way we can win Portland. Look, Portland, it's just lost. Forget it. We're out of here. We just got to, you know, run. I said in Sunday school, isn't it a shame? While we often rebuke Jonah for his hard heart, Jonah didn't refuse to go to Nineveh because he was afraid or because he didn't believe God was able to save Nineveh that's where most Christians are today. I'm too afraid. We'll just get hurt. It'll just get shut down. It's not going to do any good. It's just going to make people mad. And it won't work. They won't get saved. Jonah didn't believe any of that. Jonah believed the exact opposite. Jonah said, I'm not going 
Because it will work. They will get saved. And I don't want them to get saved. Because I hate them. Jonah had far more faith than the vast majority of Christians who refuse to do what Jesus commands them to do. So Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. (laughs) He's just kind of astonished. Okay, I guess we'll see what happens. (laughs) Go, and the Lord be with you. (coughs) So Saul gives him his armor, and uh, he says, ah, this armor doesn't work for me. And in verse 42, um, or verse 40, David took his staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had and his sling was in his hand and he drew near to the Philistine. So the Philistine came and began to draw near to David and the man who bore the shield went before him. And we often forget, David didn't just face Goliath. David faced Goliath, a giant, and then probably a pretty impressive soldier who had that shield. Goliath came out against a boy with all his armor and his great sword and his javelin between his shoulders and his weaver's beam spear and an armor-bearing shield men before him. And David stepped up in faith in the one true God, the living God, the living God. Is your God alive? Is your God alive? He's the living God. And this world around us is defying him, denying him, and blaspheming him, and hating him. Will you not stand? Will you not be provoked? Will you not believe in the living God? And face them in all their armament, with all their fearful sighs. Verse 42, when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. He cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. That's what Goliath is saying to you right now. Goliath is mocking you right now. And if you dare step out, Goliath will mock you all the more and try to make you fearful as they did yesterday and the day before and so often. Goliath will mock your sword, the sword of the Spirit. Mock the preaching of the gospel. Do you think that's going to work? Oh, yes, I do. You think you're going to convince me? Oh, no, I don't. But I believe God will convince all those he's numbered amongst the elect, all those whom Christ pronounced to tell us die. No matter how much you hate him now, he will convince you to the uttermost. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. Then assemble, then 
all this assembly will know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Not only do we forget that David didn't just face Goliath, but Goliath in a shield bearer, we also forget that David didn't just say, I'm going to take Goliath. He said, I'm going to take Goliath, and then I'm going to take the rest of you too. That's faith. Our prayers are too small. Our faith is too small. We need to look outside and say, I'm going to take you, and I'm going to take you, and I'm going to take you. I'm going to take that Catholic church. I'm going to take that Muslim mosque. I'm going to take that wicked porn industry. I'm, I'm going to take that bar. I'm going to take that whole city. The rest of you too. I'm going to take that man in the dress and that woman with the beard. I'm going to take them all. They're all going to bend their knee to Christ. Our faith is too small. Our prayers are too small. Our hearts are too small. Oh, that God would enlarge our faith, enlarge our prayers, enlarge our hearts. That we would go like the boy named David, trusting God to do His will, if He so wills it. How does God take a nation? How, God, how does God take a state? How does God take a city? Someone must stand up. Someone must stand up and say, let's go. Let's take it. Do we know that he's going to take it? No, we don't know that he is, but we know this is the means by which he does. And we know he will take all of his elect. And we know there are many elect in this city yet. And we don't know that they're not all elect. We don't know that this is not a modern day Nineveh ready to be a a miracle of grace before the eyes of the world. The city that most boasts its hatred of God becoming the city that boasts its love of Jesus Christ. We don't know that that's not what God wills. We do know it's God's will that we go therefore and preach Christ. That we go therefore and preach repentance. We do know that. So it was when the Philistines arose and came and drew near to David, that David heard and ran toward the army. He ran toward the army. He ran toward the fight. He ran toward the impossible odds. He ran toward the fearful Goliath without fear. Because God had given him faith and courage. He ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone. And he slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead. So the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it from the sheath. Goliath never unsheathed his sword. But David did. He withdrew his sword and he killed him and cut off his head with it. David killed Goliath twice. Once with a stone to the head and once with Goliath's own sword to his neck. And he took his hoary head, meaning bloody and dripping. There's a great old print, black and white, of the boy David holding up the head, the giant head of Goliath. And for a great many modern-day Christians, that's way too violent. That's way too violent. We must learn to do violence. 
righteous violence. It's violent out there. It's a violent clash of ideas. We need to be willing to have a violent clash of ideas for love of God and love of those proclaiming those gods like Goliath before them. Goliath was serving his gods. David was serving the living God. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley into the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road to Sherem, even as far as Goth and Ekron. Then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their tents. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. And he put his armor in his tent, Goliath's armor in his tent, along with that sword, and he took his head. The head was a trophy, a trophy of God's victory over the uncircumcised Philistines' champion. There are heads out there to be taken. Taken through repentance and faith. Trophies of grace. Go take heads for Jesus. Wield the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Out of love for God and love for those perishing sinners. It's a battle. It's a war. And Jesus is worthy. The living God is worthy, and He is mighty to save. In the Old Testament, they fought with a steel sword. In the New, we fight with the sword of the Lord's living Word. Which one's mightier? The Word of God, saints. The Word of God. Will we not take heads? Oh, we will if we'll unleash the Word of God. How many? I don't know. One, ten, a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand, a hundred thousand, a million, a million plus, the whole greater Portland area? I don't know. But should we not be praying and working and laboring to take them all? To rout the uncircumcised Philistines and their Goliaths? Oh, we should. Oh, we should. May God raise us up. And may we continue to fight a good fight. May God raise me up in his strength that I might fight a good fight. I'm only as strong as God makes me. Left to myself, I will flee. I will play the coward. As Paul said to the Ephesians, pray for me that I would be bold as I ought to be bold. And he prayed it from prison. He was imprisoned for preaching the gospel. Pray for me that I would be bold as I ought to be bold. Pray for me and pray for one another and pray for the Wellspring Bible Church and pray for the Lexington Reformed Baptist Church. Pastor Eric, Pastor Brian, pray for Christ Church. They would stand up and fight this world of uncircumcised Philistines that are already at war. I left out the beginning of the story, by the way. These Philistines and their Goliath, they invaded Israel. These Philistines and their Goliaths today, they're invading our homes our churches. We must stand up and fight to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.
for these precious truths, partially delivered, I pray for each one, Lord, that each one of these men and precious sisters too, Lord, would go and hear the whole message and be encouraged and strengthened and convicted and followed that we would be your army, that we would march us to war as soldiers of Christ with the cross going before, that in this one chance we have, this one precious life you have given us, that we would die to self, take up the cross, and follow Jesus. And that, Lord, we would have many, many trophies of grace in the form of redeemed souls to rejoice over. We pray it all in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Amen.